Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen and I've never read any of the books in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson and I've read every book in George R.R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. If you're just tuning in for the first time, we discuss and spoil everything through this week's episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, so this week we are spoiling everything through Season 2, Episode 4, entitled Oathkeeper. That's Season 2, Episode 4, entitled Oathkeeper. Uh, but we do not spoil anything from future week's episodes, and that includes anything from the next time on preview that HBO is so fond of showing sometimes. You can find more of our episodes at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Email us at acastofkings at gmail.com. That's acastofkings at gmail.com and uh, like us on Facebook and Twitter at facebook.com slash acastofkings and twitter.com slash acastofkings. So, Jonah Robinson, lots to discuss today. Um, I, let's start off by saying that, uh, you know, we got a lot of emails in the last week, right? I think that's fair to say. How many emails would you say we got, Joanna? I would say it's, I want to say... 400 is that is that a good guess i think that's good that's close yeah it's it's like we got hundreds of emails and uh just like we have we have more emails than they have men at the wall that's for sure (laughs) that's for sure yeah and uh the overwhelmingly vast majority of them have to do with rape and uh i just want to say like from the perspective of a podcast uh co-host here it is just really challenging to read hundreds of emails about rape many of which say similar things um, so we tried to read as many of them as possible, but I would say after like email 100, uh, it, it got very difficult for me to keep reading them, Joanna Robinson. I don't know what your experience was, but uh, I read, well, I read all of them, but I had to take breaks. Like I would let them sort of stack up and read them in chunks. And I read like, I, well, here's the thing that I'm going to say, this is actually something that, um, my boyfriend brought up to me. I was remarking upon how many emails that we received. And he said, well, you you don't remember asking for that? I was like, what? He was like, during the show last week, (laughs) you asked people to write in with their thoughts on this. So uh, basically, yes, I asked for it. Um, (laughs) Is what he was saying. And we had a conversation about that too. Anyway, um, I, but like every person who writes in, they don't, you know, this is their take on it. Right. So, yeah, I read everything. It's a lot of... I read most lot. of them. I read most yeah. of them. But it, it just got... It, it just wears on the soul after a while, I'll just say, from... Uh, well, yeah, and I will say this. Like, I had intended to write a whole separate post about this on Vanity Fair and all this stuff, and I did have to sort of buckle and give up because I couldn't really talk about it anymore. We're right. going to talk about it a little bit this week, but, like, you know... Yeah, it, it, you know, and not to say like, oh, I'm so tired of talking about rape, but it's like at a certain point, every angle has been right. prodded just, at. So. Exactly, yeah. And uh, I will say like when you, <laughs> you IM'd me yesterday when you were about to watch the episode and you said, well, I hope there's no rapes tonight on the show. Uh, but unfortunately, you did not get your wish. I did not. In fact, well, anyway, like I, I, I would say – uh, if, you, if you're looking at the show from the perspective of the showrunners, they did not think that what they were depicting last week was rape. And so I don't think they could have foreseen uh, how people reacted both to last week's episode and this week's episode. Uh, like this week's episode, the events of this week's episode take on a really unfortunate 
uh, or they're viewed in a, a much more unfortunate light, I think, than they would have otherwise been if the whole sort of controversy hadn't erupted last week. Uh, so we will get to that. Before we do, though, we, we're going to actually get to a couple of your emails about last week's episode. Before we do, uh, we got to make a few corrections because on occasion we'll make mistakes on A Cast of Kings. Uh, some of them are very obvious mistakes and some of them not so obvious. And I think the most obvious mistake is one I made uh, where I basically said something along the lines of uh, wh- why haven't they shown the slaves being mistreated at Marine or something along those lines. Um, and of course, a lot of people very logically pointed out that they have shown those slaves being mistreated because they were killed and strewn up along those posts uh, on the road to Marine. So their children too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for that, Jonah. So, um, <laughs> so yes, uh, that was a dumb comment that I made, uh, and uh, I apologize for it. But sometimes, you know, people say stupid things. So thank you guys for correcting me on that one. Uh, obviously, the people of Marine don't treat slaves very well. Good point. Uh, okay, what, are, what, what else? Uh, other corrections from last week's episode. So we expressed befuddlement at uh, the people from the Night's Watch and getting back and kind of uh, why, what was the timing. Well, first of all, it was obvious they, they had like the bindings on their wrists that they were actually tied up and captured and they had managed to escape. So that would explain how the timing lines up. And uh, several people also wrote in about why is it that Jon Snow feels he needs to go to Craster's Keep. Uh, I think that's made a little bit more clear in this week's episode, right? Uh, that essentially uh, they, those people know about the Night's Watch's defenses, right? That they know details about where they're stationed, where the underground passages are, and so on. And if Mance Raider catches them... It's going to be a bad situation for the night. It will be it will be significantly worse for the Night's Watch if they are apprehended by Mance Raider than if they are killed. Yeah, uh, and, and in addition, that Mance's current strategy is to draw them out, draw the Night's Watch out from the wall with these attacks, like Egret and the Thens. The attacks at the south of the wall is to draw them out, and he's biding his time. But if but if he knows that there's only a few people at the wall, Mance will attack right away. And if John has more time or the rest of the Night's Watch has more time, maybe they can train more recruits. And that's what we saw last week, you know, when they were bringing in the rapists. And we saw that Locke is among the new recruits that they're training at the wall. So, so yeah, thank you guys for uh, writing in about correcting that very obvious mistake. Here's a, here's a question, John Robinson, and you may not know the answer to this, but... Um, it it is weird to me that what how many people are on the Night's Watch like a hundred right is that what they said Some, something ridiculously small oh that's how many are there right now uh, so but not it, total no not total oh because there's men that are out in, uh, well they got like st- they got butchered you'll remember like all the right. Night's Watchmen who got butchered out on the yeah and there are men who are ranging and all sorts of stuff so basically like they're trying I mean. The Night's Watch has dwindled from its former glory, but they're at probably their weakest right now. I see. Okay. And, That's good context. Um, yeah, yeah. So. Cool. Well, um, you can always email us. Let us know uh, of corrections at acastofkings at gmail.com. Let's get into emails, which you can also send to acastofkings at gmail.com. So as we mentioned, we got hundreds of emails, uh, and I think that uh, we are not going to read that many emails, but we will read um, a few emails. And also, like, a, a lot of the emails fell into specific camps, you know, like they, they, ad- they sort of 
uh, were similar in ways. So we'll, we'll try to sum up some of those opinions and uh, give you our responses to those opinions. Um, so let's get to this email from Kylie. Uh, Kylie writes in uh, about how she tried to rewatch the, the rape scene from last week's episode. And actually, before I read this email, Jonah Robinson, I actually watched, I rewatched the uh, scene as well. Among, like, I actually rewatched the whole episode. Right. And upon rewatching it, like, my opinion of it, even with Alex Graves' remarks in my, fresh in my head, my opinion of it did not change whatsoever. I mean, like, uh, it, it's, the, the words that the scene ends on is literally Jamie saying, I don't care uh, right. how you feel. And it that echoes into the next scene, like from a sound perspective. So uh, it, uh, it's just very challenging for me to read that scene as anything other than a rape. Although obviously the showrunners, the director did, and uh, actually other other you know listeners uh, did as well. Uh, but I'm just reporting my own personal experience. Uh, so Kylie writes in that uh, quote: "As I rewatched the scene, two things became clear to me. Number one, why is it useful to rewatch a scene to make room for it to be less of a rape?" If they didn't convey what they wanted for first viewing, then it has failed as a scene. And two, the scene's dialogue is quite unambiguous. Cersei actually does say, not here, please, towards the beginning of the attack. But even if that somehow implies her willingness to have sex with Jamie in a different location at a different time, I don't see how that's better. Women, even in a healthy, loving relationship, uh, which is a bit far from how I characterize Jamie and Cersei, have the right to refuse sex if they are uncomfortable in the moment. Additionally, the dialogue echoed into the next scene, which is what I think Joanna brought up earlier, uh, and that's just the point I brought up just now. End quote. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyway, Jonah Robinson, any reaction to this uh, email? Well, I just want to say that you know we got we got this email pretty early on, um, and then I then got a, a hundreds of emails of people who had rewatched the scene and dissected it. And on the on the one hand, like I understand the impulse to do that because I understand what, what is interesting to me is this psychology of it's not just a rape on the show or, or not a rape. It's really circles back around to this idea of heroes and Jamie Lannister and wanting to believe that this is not something he would do. And so this idea of rewatching the rape um, or whatever you want to call it in order to try to find why, why someone you like would do something like this. I think that's an interesting reaction to have. And so I don't think it's just like rape apologists who are who are pouring over these scenes. I think it's people who are just genuinely trying to figure out their own feelings, their own understanding of characters, their own understanding of heroes in this world. Yeah, I, I don't – well, when I rewatch it, I mean I have no real – you know, I'm not as invested in like emotionally as some people are in the Jamie character. Like I uh, – his crimes, his brutal murders are still fresh in my mind. Um, so I'm not kind of a, a Jamie apologist in any way. I rewatched it primarily because I just wanted to understand the mind of director Alex Graves. Like I just wanted to see like – I wanted to see what he saw and I was unable to see what he saw. Like when a director says something and it's like this is what I intended and I'm not even close to that. I just – I really want to just try to get at why that difference and – um and yeah, I, I couldn't really. I didn't gain that much insight other than that he's just he was just wrong, or uh, certainly wrong in how the scene would be uh, taken by people. So, right. All right. Uh, Chris writes in. Uh, Chris, according to Chris, he's a police detective working in London, England, 
and uh, he's just concluded two and a half years in domestic violence. Uh, and I'm going to quote from the email here. In short, if Cersei didn't want Jamie to penetrate her, the offensive rape is committed, period. There are some legal defenses which Jamie would, of course, use were he put on trial. Uh, but these are legal defenses and do not stop the crime from being committed. The shades of rape issue emerges because many people cannot grasp that rape in a domestic environment is still rape. Any male having sex with a female who is not fully consenting commits the offense of rape. The vast majority of rapes in the UK are between parties known to each other rather than quote-unquote stranger rapes. This doesn't sit well with the masses socially, as it means that when men have intercourse with their partner who is reluctant to have sex, the man is, legally speaking, raping her. Domestic rape is still rape. It's just not socially viewed as being as deplorable as a stranger rape. In short, if Cersei didn't want to have sex as her body language would indicate, it's rape. End quote. I thought that was a fairly uh, clinical, straight-to-the-point definition of what rape is and, and why uh, Chris from London thinks that scene is a depiction of it and Uh, and i really we we really want to read that that particular email in light of the way this episode plays out because a lot of emails we got and comments i got on twitter were saying well we'll know it's rape based on how cersei and jamie interact in this episode and if they're fine then it's not rape well i mean like obviously they're not fine in this episode but also you really cannot box the way someone is going to react to a rape especially a rape inside of a relationship. Right. So to say, well, I can detect. Yeah. I mean, I mean, some people said someone actually said someone broke the spoiler rule and said, dude, have you seen the next time on preview? Jamie and Cersei are clearly fine. Of course it wasn't a rape. And, and I think as you point out, this email, uh, identifies the, the factor that like, no, that's, that's not at all a slam dunk case. Like oftentimes, uh, rapes happen within partnerships or within, uh, couples. Right. And uh, and people can still behave the same way. So that is not proof of anything in my mind. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah, as you point out, things things aren't going super well for them anyway. So right. I don't right. see why. They, anyway. Um, okay. So the last thing I want to say is um, there. So I, I brought up the point about how from a character standpoint, um, the, the rape scene didn't really make much sense. Like uh, and. Barry from Boulder, Colorado writes in here, uh, as well as a lot of comments wrote in, um, assuming this is a rape, uh, or even if this starts as a rape and ends in consensual sex, which is still basically a rape, here is why it makes sense from a character standpoint. Jamie has returned to King's Landing essentially powerless. His father scoffs at him. His dwarf brother pities him. His sister slash lover rejects him. His sellsword slash instructor uh, Braun mocks him. He fails to protect his king slash son from death. Rape is inherently an act of power and violence, not sex. The only way Jamie feels he can still exert power and begin to reestablish himself and the old order is via this rape, end quote. Uh, and I actually had a lot of uh, like I, I th- thought that that was actually a fairly plausible explanation. I still think even if you subscribe to the notion that a it's rape and b that's why Jamie is doing it is because he came back and he was basically humiliated nonstop since he's returned to King's Landing, right? Um, like that that I could buy the idea that yes he was humiliated to the breaking point. Um, I guess. My only response is I would say, like, it wasn't set up that well within the episode, right? Like, within the episode, uh, there's not much of that there. You, you 
you have to rely on your knowledge of previous episodes. Um, and even then, typically, you would kind of want some hint of it within that episode itself. Um, like if you if you take the last uh, the the three episodes in the first you know part of season four as like a whole, then maybe it might make sense. But like we we're not really given a hint of Jamie's. I disagree uh, with that. Okay, I will, tell me. Mostly because I I actually like it when TV series uh, don't feel the need to plot for you something within the episode. I appreciate it so much more from a storytelling point of view if it's something that they picked up from a, pre- from a previous episode. But even so, I believe that the scene between Tyrion and Jamie. no, no, you're right. That's in the episode before that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, know what I, I don't know. You're, but what, like, you're, what you're saying is that like, it's, it's actually okay that they didn't spell it out for you within the episode, that yeah. it's okay to rely on on previous episodes knowledge. Yes. Um, which I think is a totally valid point of view. I think like, I guess I'm just explaining like why I reacted that way um, to last yeah. week's episode, which is to say like, as someone just watching the episode, it does seem to come out of nowhere. When you evaluate the events that went up to it, um, it does make sense. Whether or not they should have kind of seeded that in within that same episode um, is, I guess that's a whole nother debate that we can have, but I, we're not going to have that today. Um but uh, yeah, I, I thought that th- basically this point that uh, Barry from Boulder is making is one that I'm very sympathetic to. That like the, the showrunners did actually build it up. Jamie has been being humiliated this whole time, and anyone who is, is used to being a very prideful uh, and arrogant person uh, who's then suddenly humiliated nonstop over the series of uh, several episodes is probably going to lash out in some really inappropriate ways, to put it mildly. Right. Um, Which And just because we're trying to understand the psychology does not mean we are... Excusing it, anyway. Excusing yeah. it. Yeah, for sure. Um, now, there was also one last opinion that someone made at the Slash Film comment boards that I was also quite sympathetic to, uh, which is that the scene itself, just the way it plays out, is just really kind of awful and... Uh, uh, what, what's you know? I'm going to look up the word that he used, but basically just like kind of un, be, oh, so over the top ridiculous that it's kind of unbecoming of the show. Do you know what I mean? Uh-huh. That just this idea of these two people doing it next to their um, or this rape happening, however you interpret the scene, uh, happening next to uh, Cersei's or their their actually their dead child uh, is just kind of a bit much. Uh, from the perspective, just like a regular common sense perspective. Uh, I actually partly agree with that. I mean, I don't know what what you think of that, Joanna. What what are your thoughts? Well, I don't know. You know how I am about defending the book, and since it's from the book, um, you know, I'm just saying, yeah, this is part of the fucked up world that we were delivered since, uh, since the first episode when... Jamie pushed Bran out a window because right. he called him boning Cersei. So, you know, it's. I think that this is well within the bounds of what we've seen so far. It might be pushing the bounds, but, but I, I you know, in a show with ice zombies and, and dragons and ra- incest on the regular, I'm not sure that, that we can say that this is egregious. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's also a totally fair point. Uh, and, and actually, a lot of people pointed out how like uh, th- there was actually a lot of confusion as to why 
people were making such a big deal out of the scene, given the horrific nature of a lot of the stuff that's happened in the series of the show. So actually, that's a question, John Robinson, is like, do you have any sense of why that's the case? I think, is it just like kind of Jamie worship going on and like people being emotionally invested in him that like when he does something terrible, people get more upset than, let's say, some random other rape that's going on in the show? Yeah, or... (laughs) You know, children being nailed to a post. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it does go back to that idea of of feeling like you need someone to root for in the Game of Thrones universe. And feeling like if you're watching a show or reading a book, you need a hero to root for. And that we've been grasping for one since Ned Stark died. And the fact that a lot of people latched onto Jamie because they thought they recognized a traditional hero arc. And feeling the rug pulled out from under them. So yeah, I think I think it has more to do with the raper than the act of ra- not to say that you aren't well, you know, entitled to get upset about any depiction of rape on television, of course. But like I think this <laughs> this rape more than any other rape sounds like a terrible thing to say, but this rape more than any other rape because Well, just empirically it's the case that like people were way more upset about this one than Yeah. Because, other, uh, yeah, other rapes they, they felt the in, invested in that. Here, I found the comment that I was looking for. This is from Sean uh, okay. McArdle. He writes in, Rape or no, having Jamie and Cersei do it next to their son's dead corpse is supremely unnecessary and unbelievable. As despicable as they are, two parents effing on the corpse of their son is just so ridiculous. It doesn't reflect anything any real people would do this side of a John Waters movie. It's pure schlock. And it's stupid writing on uh, both Martin and the showrunner's part. You, you know, I, I read a passage from a book today where <laughs> Jamie, inside Jamie's head, he calls Joffrey like, no more than some seed I spilled in Cersei's cunt, which is the word he likes to use and I don't. But anyway, that's, I am directly quoting that that's how he thought of his son Joffrey. So, <laughs> you know, just to get some perspective. That's, well, that's true, but that's not... How it's to be, uh, he's he's been fairly agnostic on the na- on the nature of Joffrey in the show, um, or at least we I don't think we have been given that level of insight into his perception on Joffrey in the show. No, 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 no. Yeah, no, I agree. So I agree. in the context of the show, I can see why Sean would say that. So th- those were opinions. I, I'm not saying I 100 percent agree with all the opinions I just named, but like those were opinions that that I just read that I kind of am like pretty sympathetic to. Like parts of me felt the way that these people feel about that scene. So. Uh, I thought it was worth sharing. Any other thoughts before we move on, Jonah Robinson? Um, before we move on to the show rundown? Correct. Uh, the one thing that I wanted to say is someone wrote in, and I'm sorry, we couldn't find the email. It might have been someone sent this to me on Twitter, but uh, we were we were making fun of Sam a lot uh, for being uh, as inept as he was with Gilly, and someone told us to take it easy on Sam because he has his vows to consider. And it's true. I, I wasn't really thinking well enough about how the – a nice watch has a has a vow of celibacy, and because we're just so used to seeing dudes break that vow. Yeah, we're just so used to seeing, you <laughs> including know, so in this episode. So, so basically, you know, Sam is torn. Like that's an extra level of awkward. It's not just that Sam is awkward around girls. It's like Sam is like, ah, oh, but my vows, ah, oh, but my feelings. So you know, that's something to consider when we're being kind of mean to Sam. So. All right. Well. You're you're pushing for the Sam sympathy here, and you shall find no quarter from me, John. Oh no. <laughs> um. Anyway, so that's uh that's all that 
we have for our feedback. Thank you guys so much for writing into a cast of kings at gmail.com. We appreciate it, even if reading your emails was really emotionally taxing. Um, we're, we're definitely never going to, we're not going to talk about rape ever again on the show. Never. Until never. the end of this episode. Yeah. Okay. Um, so let's, uh, let's begin, shall we? Uh, so this is the episode, as you put it, J Rob, that, uh, kind of changed everything. I, I mean, I wish I could have been there as the collective brains of every single smug book reader exploded outside of the back of their head. <laughs> <laughs> for, for so long, book readers have lorded over their intimate knowledge of plot details of future developments of Game of Thrones as though they were somehow better for having spent a few hours reading these books. But now we are kind of... A few hours! A few hours no sir <laughs> nay sir days also there are plenty of us book readers who have been very careful and protective i wouldn't say there's plenty but i would say you have been general uh, your there are plenty. your honor has is beyond question uh and so but yes, this, i wish you had been there with your like smartphone yeah, oh my size, gosh like scurrying I so, my couch trying I, to figure out what was going on I, if i could have given if i could have given a hundred bucks i would have been there with the cell phone filming your reaction because <laughs> and put it up as a uh, you know one of those reaction vids because it would have been freaking awesome <laughs> i uh, i put a call out on twitter for people to do that i wonder if anyone did film like I, for because i watched it on east coast time so i wanted some west coast watchers to whip out their cell phones and film their book, their reader, book friends. reader friends yeah yeah, yeah. oh my gosh i hate revenge them so much. for the red wedding videos i hate know. them so much john robinson no book no, readers. no. <laughs> i'm just obviously i'm joking um okay so we start with the scene uh between gray worm and missende who's uh teaching missende's teaching gray worm how to speak the common language right english in our terms tongue. yeah yeah mm-hmm. uh but um uh, yeah, so they just have this kind of interaction, uh, and which I, thought, I really liked. Yeah, it was pretty cool, and apparently not from the books, right? Not from the books. Yeah, so a great example of kind of taking two sort of minor characters and uh, giving them this cool relationship that you kind of, even though I believe Grey Worm has been castrated, is that correct, or is a eunuch? Yeah, but you know. <laughs> They could still find love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the um, it's funny. I think about three quarters of the way through this episode, I was like, "Man, I am loving all these like two person dialogue scenes that we're getting." Like basically, every two person dialogue scene was just I thought killing it in this episode. And then things went took like a sharp turn towards the end. But uh, this this was a great way to start. Beautifully lit. Uh, we should talk the, talk about the fact that Michelle McLaren, who's you know both David and I really love as a TV director, uh, directed this episode. And I think you can really tell with the way certain scenes were lit. She's just very stylish. Yep. So uh, mo- she's probably best known for doing a bunch of episodes of Breaking Bad. So. Right, and she was like a producer, an ex- executive yep. producer on Breaking Bad as well. Yep. But she's awesome. She's <laughs> great. We love her. Um, so yeah, that was a great scene, and then and then you have Grey Worm, you know, going through the series into Marine, and and once and that's not his role in the book either. And so I, I wrote an article today, basically theorizing that this was an answer to a lot of the problems that people had, including you, Dave, about this 
white savior business with Danny. By the way, did you notice that there is a suspiciously significant number of white people in the slave crowd? Oh, I did. For sure I did. (laughs) Um, And someone on Twitter pointed that out to us and and I had already noticed. They might have been dirty, but they were white. (laughs) They were Um, (laughs) unmistakably white. Yeah, so I think that was trying to to tip the scales a little bit like get give a bit of gray worm and Missandei's backstory um have gray worm be the one to go in and like so it's a slave himself helping the other slaves empower themselves um in the books it's barris and selmy and jorah who go in so i just i think it was that's my theory completely that i plucked out of thin air as to why they made those changes so uh, people at Marine don't seem to be too intelligent. Like apparently, slaves outnumber the masters by a significant amount, and three to one. And they keep them all together so they can plan and scheme. <laughs> apparently, or at least large groups of them together. Um, so anyway, they 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 had it coming, which is for for a number of reasons. Not only were they terrible people, but uh, also stupid. Apparently, uh, and the they take over Marine, and then uh, Danny decides to meet. Injustice with justice by nailing up all these dudes in a really graphic fashion, by the way. Like, they really had a close up on those nails there. Yeah. Uh, I was talking with a coworker at work today about uh, the, this scene, and uh, it did feel pretty quick, the whole takeover of Marine. Uh, did you feel the same way? Well, so in the books, it all happened, like, it happens between chapters. We talked before about how, like, Danny. You know, you have point of view chapters. So you have a Danny chapter and she's like, hmm, how am I going to take Marine? And then the next chapter is like, Danny has already taken Marine and she thinks about how she did it. So they even flesh it out, I think, as much as they could. Um, no, I mean, that's not true. They could have done much more. But <laughs> they fleshed it out plenty for my company. I mean, it could have been a Blackwater-esque episode. Um, but no, yeah, I, I, it's it's not a huge deal. Like, I didn't think, man, we should have seen more of that. Because basically you've seen one slave uprising you know <laughs> you kind all. of seen them all you know what i mean yeah. so uh, i didn't mind that it was so short it just uh, it is kind of curious like it is interesting like when the show chooses to show you uh, a huge battle and when it doesn't part of that is due to budget and part of that is due to story uh and so it like i, I would say like the the ones that it shows you are ones that the showrunners think are critical or, or very important um or so, at least happen on screen, like happen on screen in the books. So they need to happen on screen in the show. Right, right. Um, Quote, unquote, on screen, yeah. Right, right, on page. Um, but yeah, and then you have, did you feel like that looked like fascist imagery to have Danny's flag up there in the harpy? Mm, and like, interesting. And the way that the red Targaryen flag sort of looks. That's not from the books either. I just thought that that looked kind of interesting to I me. I will say the CG looked pretty pretty terrible. Uh, in that scene, like the with her looking out amongst the city and then showing her in the tower, I, I thought that was was kind of rough. Um, but I did like the imagery, like with the the flag unfolding, and um, reminded me of that scene in GI Joe Retaliation, John Robinson, where they, they <laughs> unfurl they unfurl those cobra cobra flags. Cobra Commander. Cobra Commander. That's right on uh, on the White House. Uh, so. <laughs> Sorry. It's okay. Cobra Kai is what, when, in my household, whenever we talk about bad guys, that's our code. We're like, oh, we don't like them. They're Cobra Kai. Oh, so, right. Sorry. There you go. Uh, yeah. Shades of reef install going on there for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. 
So Danny had a really good wig on. So I just thought that I put that out there. Yeah. You know, this podcast brings you the important stuff, like my observations on Danny's wig. So <laughs> there you go. All right. So what else happened in this episode? Um, so we go to King's Landing and we see more Braun and Jamie fighting. And that's it's always amusing to see them interact because Braun's always taking Jamie down a peg. Really right. enjoyed that. Uh, and then Jamie actually goes to see Tyrion in prison because he needs to find out if Tyrion is actually the killer and is convinced that he's not as a result of that conversation. Yeah, and I'm sorry. I don't want to get too bogged down, but I did want to compare the CG of, of the Marine stuff to the actual shooting on location of the Dubrovnik, Croatia stuff that they do for King's Landing. So the fact that Braun and Jamie are actually fighting you know, on next the water, to, right. uh, yeah, the water looked uh, beautiful. Yeah, so. or even just a scene with Marjorie and uh, Olena, yeah, talking like it. It, it uh, I don't know if it's any CG. Like there might be some CG assistance there, but it looks spectacular. It yeah. looks like they're actually in this beautiful mythical place. It really does. So uh, there is this one moment in the scene with uh, Jamie and Tyrion, though, and it's when he says, "You know, Cersei's." You know, child, and then Jamie looks at him and says, "Don't." Yeah. What did you make of that? He's like, "Don't go there. Let's not talk about incest." But then, like later, it's just very clear that Tyrion knows. You know, Tyrion's hinting at something. Jamie's like, "Don't, don't speak this. We're not supposed to talk about this." And then Tyrion talks about it anyway. You know. Yeah. Uh, Why? Oh, did you have a different interpretation? No, no, no. It just is interesting because, like, I, I just, as I mentioned earlier, we just don't hear Jamie talk about Joffrey like his son too often. Right. So, um, it, and I mean, in the in the in the book chapters that I was rereading today, he makes the point to Cersei that she told him to keep a distance from his children. Right. Uh, lest he rouse suspicion. And so she, you know, she was just constantly training him to not interact with the kids. So the fact that he would be aloof from them makes some sense in a twisted way, a uh, twisted incest sort of way. But you're right that we don't, we don't have a lot of insight into that on the show. There's a scene with Sansa and Littlefinger uh, where she asks him about, uh, What's going on? What was your plan there? And uh, Littlefinger was obviously involved in the plot to kill Joffrey, but he wasn't the instigator. Uh, and he kind of explains that it's because Joffrey is pretty freaking unstable. And you can't have someone that unstable being that powerful. Uh, and a lot of people felt that way. So then it's revealed that Lady Olena is the... Uh, Probably, if not the killer, then certainly one of the people that that ordered the hit, as it were. The, um, I just want to go back to the Littlefinger thing yep. and say that I wouldn't trust any, like, I don't know. There's no way for me to talk about that where it doesn't sound like a spoiler, but how many times has Littlefinger said that he didn't do something and he did something? Do you know? Right. Uh, not sure where you're really going with that, Jonah Robinson, because... Uh, it's pretty unambiguous that Elena played a significant role in the kill. Yeah, I'm not saying she didn't play a role. You're just you, saying in general, saying don't Elena, take everything. You, you're saying Elena instigated it. And I'm... I'm saying Elena was instrumental in it. Yes. How about that? Yes. Okay. Um, but I think your point is well taken. You don't always necessarily trust Littlefinger all the time. 
never trust Littlefinger, right? And um, like Ned learned that the hard way, right? Um, and people should, you know, people have pointed out that the the necklace was poison. Um, right. So that's what caused and it. There was that close up shot on Marjorie's necklace, like just in case you successfully avoided the internet and didn't have this spoiled for you. There's that nice close up shot of Elena fiddling with Marjorie's necklace. So that you could figure out, oh, we got some emails in weeks past. Why didn't you guys talk about the necklace thing? Because it, it wasn't was like book knowledge. It was book knowledge. Really. Yeah. And it didn't escape our notice. Like we did notice it. I think Dave was a little bit spoiled on it. I was, um, I was a lot like some very inconsiderate uh, listeners spoiled me on like what's, what was going on there. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's some book readers wrote in and they're like, why didn't you guys talk about the necklace? It's clearly what he used to poison him. And I guess my response is, I don't think that was clear from last week's episode that that's the case, right? I don't think Bailey said, well, the necklace was used to poison him, right? I mean, he says that he made the necklace and that it was fake. Um, and it's certainly, it's hinted at that like, there's something weird going on with the necklace, but I don't think it was clearly spelled out. Am I right about this? I think it's just all been kind of murky, and it's probably impossible for me to determine what has been clear-cut, demonstrated by the show, without having my knowledge bleed into it, unfortunately. But but I, I, I will say that, yeah, sometimes we get emails, and that's fine. You guys can always write into us, obviously, but sometimes you get emails saying, like, why did you guys miss this? Why didn't you guys talk about it? But there's usually a very good reason why we haven't brought up something that seems very obvious to you. And it's because in this instance, just like Ramsey's identity last season, I think it's flavored by book knowledge. Yeah. I think there's, it's possible to figure this out on your own, but I think for the most part, people were tipped off by people who knew what happened in the books and the show poses as a whodunit. So if there's someone listening to this podcast who wanted it to unfold in a sort of whodunit way, then it's not on us to destroy that. that for them. <laughs> So, Olena. Well, and the only other thing I'm going to say about Littlefinger is he had that great, this is not anything. I just thought it was good good writing and it's directly from the book. And I always like to point that out, which is this whole idea of Sansa's like, why would you kill Joffrey when the Lannisters are good to you and you have no motive? And he's like, that's the perfect time to do something like this. Then they'll never suspect you. Yeah, but I like Sansa's rejoinder to that, which is, uh, well, dude, I don't think you'd risk your life just to confuse people. <laughs> <laughs> like, just uh, well, to be like, little little finger psychology is interesting, you know. So yeah, all right. Well, so then it's revealed that Elena was at least partially behind the murder of Joffrey, right? Um, which I thought was kind of interesting because uh, I don't remember if Elena was part of one of the people lamenting that they hadn't consummated the marriage and that that would have made it easier. So it seemed to me like if Elena was behind it and was behind the timing of it, that that was an interesting time to kill Joffrey, like before they had actually consummated the marriage. Maybe it was to prevent her from having to consummate the marriage. But I think like Marjorie had already made peace with that idea. Uh, so I am curious about that. Am I, am does I, li- does Littlefinger talk about Tyrion at all in this episode? I think he says, uh, that he's not responsible. Okay. I, I don't know beyond that. Okay. So, um, all right. Well, I'll take it by your silence that you can't say anything. <laughs> so we'll move on, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> all right. What else? I think at this point... Oh, actually, so a uh, couple of scenes... Oh, actually, most of the show took place in King's Landing this week, didn't it? It was mostly King's Landing and uh, Night's Watch and Craster's Keep. 
Yeah. Um, so it might have been evenly split between the two, actually. Yeah. So uh, let's let's move on. Um, before we get to uh, any of the other segments here, uh, we got to talk about the power of ideas, John Robinson. <laughs> The power of ideas, because you know, sometimes you can have an idea, and it can become a multi-million-dollar empire. It can become a uh, an award-winning podcast. We haven't won any awards, but I'm just saying, like, it could, right? Uh, it can become a, a really popular site where you sell handmade cards, for example. I mean. All, sometimes the greatest ideas start just like with a kernel and by purchasing a URL. But whenever I get an idea, I instantly buy the URL, um, which explains why I have dozens and dozens of URLs, but only like four actual things I'm doing in my life. <laughs> but it's okay. When you have a great idea, you want a secure domain name for it. You might want something catchy and memorable to represent your online identity. And so to that degree, uh, hover gives you exactly what you need to get the job done. And actually, Hover has offered to give us some special uh, Cast of Kings uh, discount codes to uh, to use, and you will actually get a percentage off your order if you use this special Cast of Kings code. And this week, the code is hover.com slash winter is coming. That's hover.com slash winter is coming. Uh, so go there uh, at hover.com slash winter is coming and you will learn uh, – well, you'll, you'll be able to get a discount on uh, your Hover order. So what's great about Hover? Uh, Hover is basically not like one of those quote-unquote other uh, domain name registrars. They have excellent customer service. They don't try to upsell you on a bunch of random crap you don't need. Uh, they have amazing customer service uh, and it's, it's just really not – like at all an unpleasant experience like it is with other domain registrars like other domain registrars uh let me tell you it's like a minefield going through their websites hover.com uh doesn't make it complicated at all makes it super simple and they are totally honest they don't believe in heavy-handed upselling or charging you for something that should just be there so if you go to hover.com slash winter is coming you get 10 percent off your first purchase that's hover.com slash winter is coming we thank hover for being a sponsor for us uh this year we also want to thank all the people that donated to us via the kickstarter project that makes this podcast possible uh let's read off these names of people uh, and butcher them uh, michael mazakane joe shannon paul wheat king wilson uh danish syed george anchors jamie berlins is that right general robinson <laughs> that name there Oh, um, I think is that a cut and paste error? I don't think so, but if it is, we will read it again next week. I yes, promise. I Jamie will Jamie Berlin's uh, or Berlin's Jess uh, Walia, Eric Schmidt, uh, Ken M, Sarah Cobean, and Min. I would like to buy Joanna a coffee. Yang, thank you guys so much for your generous contributions. A Serafina, right? Is her full name? That's what I mean, Serafina. Um. Ron Harshman, Ed Peterson. She uh, said she said first name pronounced like Sarah, so I just assumed it was Sarah, but in fact it is Sarafina. So, <laughs> uh, Brandon Tate, um, Cliff Keynes, Josh Parham, Mark from Yarraville, Victoria, June St. James, um, Jason Shepard, 
Brad R.R. Buckles, Michael Hoops Gonzalez, Caleb O'Brien from Australia, Hugh Fotheringham, and Shane Bissett. Or Bissett. Thank you guys so much for your contributions to our Kickstarter project. Let's move on with the show, J-Rob. Um, so we go back to the wall, uh, and uh, John's trying to train recruits, showing how much of a badass he is. Uh, and there is a, you know, th- there's apparently debate about whether Jon Snow's plan is the right one. But yeah. Al- Alistair Throne and Jano Slynn are like, hey, dude, uh, because Mormont is dead now, right? So they might like choose who the new leader is going to be. Well, they have to. Like Alistair Thorne is there as temporary leader, right? And, and so, and there's choosing. there's yeah. fear that Jon Snow might become that leader. Is that right? Like I, I, that's based on that conversation. That's what I interpret it as. Well, right, and I I can hear your your incredulity. Um, <laughs> and this was, I think this was like for John to be a potential leader is what the book readers have been looking for, which I think has been why there's been so much complaint about the way that Jon Snow is depicted in the show. Cause he's not been a great leader of men, but I think they've done a really fairly efficient job in the last couple episodes of rehabbing his character. Um, well, aside or- from all those rules that he broke. Right. Well, I don't mean rules that he broke, but just as a leader of men. Like, here he is training these men without right. anyone telling him to, and then he's got that Spartacus moment later, and it's obvious that all these men want to follow John and look up to John. Um, and I don't think we saw much of that before in in John or even the potential of that. But but everyone's reaction to the earlier scene in the season with John in front of the council where he really sort of stood up for himself – um, all, all of the show watchers that I heard really liked that scene. Yeah, and I think I, I liked, and I really liked John in this episode as well. So I think they're trying really hard to make up ground um, that they didn't cover before by making John, um, you know, more of a leader figure. Uh, so we also see Locke is, has made it to the wall. Right. And John Robinson, can you remind us why Locke is here? Uh, he's been sent because, so... Theon admits to Bruce Bolton that it wasn't Brandon Reckon he killed. It was two other farm boys. So Locke has been sent to find out, you know, then, then they thought, oh, well, maybe because Jon Snow is at the wall, Brandon Reckon would head there. So Locke has been sent to find out what's going on. Are Brandon Reckon still alive? Are they secretly at the wall? Um, because they will be huge political leverage if he can find them. So, uh, So the thing is, I guess, like, Locke has faked himself into the Night's Watch with the full intention of deserting them when he finds the information he needs. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that he he lies to John about how he got there and and so on. That was and I think that was that may have been potentially confusing for people because that sounded like a pretty plausible story that he told. Uh, but in fact, it was a it was a bed of lies. He's pretty good that Locke. Yes, for sure. He's yeah. kind of an evil guy. Um, <laughs> So then, as you point out, they have the scene later. Oh, oh, and one thing I also wanted to point out, that boy is still there uh, from the last episode, right? And he's Oh, is that of, the same boy? Yeah, it's the same boy from, from the last episode. You called it, brother. Well, <laughs> thanks, John Robinson. I mean, is he in the books? No. That kid? He's not in the books? No. Interesting. Interesting. He's the, he's the male version of Roz, I bet. Right. He's going to become crucial. He will plot. be sleeping with everybody in no time. No, J. J. Rob, I'm not. I'm okay. I'm joking. I was no, joking no, I earlier, but I'm 100 percent serious. Like I, I, I have a feeling 
that something's going to happen. Like, he is going to, in some way, uh, be in a position to kill Egret one day. Like, someday in the future. And uh, John is going to get in the way, or there's going to be some big conflict. I'm calling it right now. All right. And since you, since he's not in the book, you have no, you can't say one way or the other. You can't even hint at what you do or do not know, right? Because I have, I have thoughts. Okay, what do you, what, well, what do you think of what no, I just I said? No, I can't, I can't talk about it. it <laughs> I have book knowledge fueled thoughts that I can't speak of. I see, I see. Okay, all right. I'm, I can still be smug, my friend. Okay, don't try to take it away from me. I'm really, I'm gonna try. So. <laughs> Uh, so then they have, he, as you point out, he kind of gives this talk and then everyone's kind of inspired by it because John's still kind of making some sense there, man. Like he's kind of I love being that. logical. Called, like he called Commander Mormont. He's like, if we're all brothers, Commander Mormont is our father and they killed our father. It was, it was some good stuff. It was, it was not quite Ned Stark level. There's a track, uh, by an artist named, uh, Ramesses B., uh, where he's done a remix of the Game of Thrones um, theme song, which I listened to last week and fell in love with. And over it is sampled Ned Stark's, one of Ned Stark's speeches of the Riverlands about justice. And it really made me think about John being a legitimate heir to Ned Stark here in this, in this concept of justice that he's talking about. So Check out that song and then rewatch Jon Snow talking. Or you could just watch Ned Stark give the speech, I guess, without some like hip synthy beats behind it. Your your choice. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, okay. So uh speaking of music, my favorite part of the scene was how there's like inspiring music going on here. Uh it's actually qu- kind of moving. I lo- like I have a soft spot in my heart for these kinds of scenes and I thought it was done really well. And then the second lock stands up, the music turns ultra evil. Like it's noticeable how evil it is. Yeah, you uh, told me about it and I rewatched the scene. I was like, yeah, that was pretty. Uh, <laughs> it was really <laughs> pretty blatant. It, it was, was so like- blatant, but because it was so blatant, like I loved it because of how like obvious it was like it was even it, it wasn't even like trying to be subtle. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it was just kind of like it's the equi- the Game of Thrones equivalent of wearing your heart on your sleeve. Do you know what I mean? I just have a lot of affection for it. It might as well have been like he stands up, the lightning crashes, and then you hear like dun dun dun. Like yeah. that's basically what happened. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I really, uh, really enjoyed that. So uh, he's taking a bunch of men with him, and uh, Alistair probably not super thrilled. Alistair is probably not super thrilled of how uh, inspirational Jon Snow has become. Great reaction shot of Alistair Thorne and Jenna Slint, like drinking, having, yeah, like their drinks slowly, down. slowly, like putting their drinks down. That's awesome, yeah, so great <laughs> stuff. Uh, all right, what else? Uh, so a couple of other big, big moments. Um, Let's just talk about the rest of King's Landing before we close in on the end of this episode. Yes, let's. Uh, so I, I, I thought there's an interesting juxtaposition of scenes where C- Cersei kind of tells off Jamie, right? Like, it's, things between them are tense. Let's put it that way, right? Like, how, how would you characterize a scene between Cersei and Jamie? Fraught. Would you care to expand on that? Well, I mean, I think this is Cersei at her most passive-aggressive well, no, probably not. She can probably get better than that. But, um, yeah, I mean, things have been chilly with them this entire season. But that that was the worst it has been. And he calls her your grace and she calls him Lord Commander. Yeah. And it's all very um, tense and then made more so 
unintentionally so because I guess the show didn't think that was rape last week by those of us who are watching it as like a post-rape conversation. So um, what are your thoughts? Um, so yeah, really, like I said, really passive aggressive. The way she says like Lord Commander at the end, it just sent a chill down my spine. Mm-hmm. When are these two crazy cats going to realize that they love each other, John Robinson? Mm. Um, anyway, uh, the one thing I want to point out about this scene is uh, this is the first time that I think it's really acknowledged that Jamie was on duty and completely ineffectual at present, uh, preventing Joffrey's death. Um, I don't think that was even brought up last episode. And I mean, it seems to me that like if if a guy comes back, he's in, in this the world of Westeros. A guy comes back home, he's missing his sword hand, and lets the king die of poison. Like they were already doubtful of his abilities to begin with. Like that they would continue to let him serve despite letting the king die. Um, seems odd to me. And knowing what I know about the books from you, that in the original formulation of things, Jamie didn't come back until after Joffrey had died. Is that correct? Right. So that actually, like that sequence of events would make a little bit more sense to me. But I guess they think it's okay to elide over the fact that he let King Joffrey die. Um, so I think that's one area. And I know you love it when I say this, Sean Robinson, but I think that's one area where the book might have been superior to the show. Um, so. <laughs> well, I mean, also the... You know, Jamie's position is more political than anything else. He's still Tywin's son, even though Tywin said like "fuck off" earlier this season. Like he's still Ty- he's still right. Jamie Lannister. So yeah, if it had been anyone else with like he would have been beheaded probably at this point. But right. it's Jamie Lannister, so I think he's a little. So not only is he not beheaded, he gets to keep his job. You know, if if only we could all have such job security. Nepotism. What are you gonna do? Yeah, what are you gonna do. Uh, so then, interesting juxtaposition because you know Cersei is demanding like, "Oh, you got to station more guards outside my son's room." And then, right after that, we see Marjorie sneak into her son's room. Yes. Uh, and that was an amazing scene uh, yes. because she, Marjorie, is just somehow she's able to be both seductive and incredibly creepy at the same time. I thought, oh, you thought that was creepy? I mean, I it's it was creepy bit, because Tommen is so young. Yes, yes. It's manipulative, but I, I just... Think All right, J-Rob, J- if we had... Um, if, if the genders were reversed, I mean, how would you have felt about that scene? Yeah, it's creepy on the one hand, but on the other hand, you have to admire Marjorie and how good she is at what she does. Oh, yeah, no. I'm, She's so good at it. Agreed. And, but, I mean, she did kiss him on the forehead. She didn't... Um, and this this comes back to what we talked about. I think we talked about this earlier on the show about this idea of aging Tom and up, right. which they did. They recast the actor. He's older, so I think it's a lit like slightly less creepy than it would be. Um, and in the books, it's a little bit more like, as as someone put it to me, Marjorie using her babysitting wiles versus Marjorie using her her like her feminine sex, wiles. Yeah, her feminine wiles. So it's yeah, it's a little more got a little bit more of a seductive tenor than it does in the books, where she's just like the best babysitter ever to Tommen, basically. So um and and there was I mean, little- I knew you were upset by this episode, so um I thought that we were gonna see some like statutory 
something, yeah. something happened like in that scene. Yeah, I'm um, sorry I planted that seed in your brain. It's okay. That probably made the scene much more creepy. There was also <laughs> a great bit of fan service, book fan service there with a character of Sir Pounce, which is Tommen's cat. That's like that's a fan favorite out of the books is Tommen's cat, Sir Pounce. So the fact that they named him and talked about him was was a pretty cute little moment. So and this is another one of those like two person conversation scenes that I really loved in this episode. You know, when when this episode gets, you know, thrown under the bus for a number of things, I don't want to forget the really, really good parts, which is this conversation, the way it's lit, because Marjorie has like the lantern lighting her and then Tommen's all in blues. And there's a lot of great like fire and ice imagery in this episode that Michelle McLaren pulls off. So, um you know, if you want to rewatch an adorable scene between a young man and his much, much older predatory fiance. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, the lighting was just incredible. And how like Marjorie is like orangish and he's blue. It's just it, it, it was almost like like I was thinking afterwards, like, what is the symbolism of that lighting? Right. What What do you think might be the symbolism? Like my my interpretation is like it could be this idea of like when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit. You know, like there's one that like she has that knowledge and he doesn't because he's so innocent and young. That's that's cool. I like that. Um, <laughs> I thought Michelle McLaren was going for, like I said, a sort of fire and ice motif where you would go directly from firelit scenes to really cold blues. And this happened in Marine, too, when you have gray worm talking to all the slaves and the, you know, he's got torches and they're all lit orange. And then it cuts immediately to the nighttime in the streets and it's ice blue. And, um, I don't know. Just why, if, if you feel like watching the episode again and, and sort of looking at that fire and ice juxtaposition, that's, that's what I thought she was going for. Yeah. And then you get it in one scene with Marjorie Tallman. So. All right. So I think we now arrive at the scene that was pretty horrifying. We skipped over Brianna and Jamie. And oh, Tom. yes. I'm sorry. Okay. So, man, these episodes are running really long, General. I know. So, I'm sorry. Um, it's okay. It <laughs> so, uh, Brienne and uh, and Jamie, right? Like, so, so Jamie has this talk with Cersei where Cersei calls uh, Brienne a cow, I believe, and uh, essentially wants Sansa to be hunted down as well, right? I, yeah. I think she, she makes that clear. And Jamie, in a complete sort of contravention of what Cersei wants, not only like sends, uh, well, basically sends Brienne to go save her and get her somewhere safe where that is. I have no idea. Um, but that is the mission that he, uh, he bestows upon her. And what's cool is that Podrick returns in a completely unanticipated, uh, <laughs> I mean, you let me think that he's going away, John Robinson. And now he's back. I like to surprise you. It's cool. It's cool. <laughs> uh, a very beloved character and uh, always great to see that he's back. So, um, Yeah, so over- Pod and Brienne are our new, like, the show loves to do these unlikely couples. And so Pod and Brienne are off on an adventure together. So. Yeah. And they have that goodbye scene and they call the sword Oathkeeper, which is the name of this episode. Um, can I just say, Jonah Robinson, I think that Oathkeeper is kind of a cheesy name. I'm sorry. I just feel that way. Even though, the, despite the cheesiness of the sword, like the emotions were real to me. Uh, with Brienne saying goodbye. I'm sorry, Jamie saying goodbye to Brienne and realizing like that was that the best thing in his life just rode away on a horse. Just let her ride away. Well, here's the question. I mean, what I was 
worried about is how people were going to react to this stuff in a post Jamie's horrible rapist world. You know, like I, I think it's rape in the book. I think it's rape in the show, et cetera. But people seem to really, really, really hate Jamie Lannister now. And I'm not saying you shouldn't dislike Jamie Lannister or have complicated feelings, but like, how does this shade you watching the interaction with Tyrion and how does it shade you watching the interaction with Bran and you know, how does that, I mean, I guess I would just say that all the characters have done pretty terrible things like, right. or most of them have done things that they're not proud of, uh, in the show. And to, to echo what you told me last week, right. That this is a morally complex universe. And, yeah. um, so if we're willing to watch, uh, Theon, you know, burn two innocent kids alive and still have sympathy for him. Certainly we can do the same for Jamie, right? In terms of raping his sister, I guess. I thought (laughs) that, um, I don't know if you had a chance to read it, but Dustin Rolls wrote a really interesting piece on Bajiva.com this last week about why rape is seen as a more egregious act than murder, uh, in, in at least, um, in art, I guess. Um, which I just think is an interesting thing, an interesting post. I'm not saying I 100% agree with everything. I'm just saying I think it's an interesting conversation to have. Why are we more forgiving of Danny for, you know, locking her handmaiden in a vault to die? Right. Um, and we don't even think twice about it. But, you know, like, those are both horrible things to do. Right. So right. Or uh, crucify hundreds of people in this episode exactly (laughs) i mean sure they were horrible people to begin with but still crucifixion or what you know not a not a good way to go right uh not a merciful way to go right so so you know just just something to keep in mind like our as a nation or as uh, hbo watchers or whatever are different differing reactions to rape and to murder um speaking of which (laughs) craster's keep where you can have both rape and murder if you want it anyway. Ugh. So the the main guy, what's his name? The Tanner? M- Tanner, right. He's kind of the main baddie who's drinking out of Mormon's very sanitized skull. Um, oh, yeah. I'm sure they boiled it. They boiled yeah. it, right. And uh, drinking water out of it and kind of dr- drunk with power. Uh, metaphorically, he's drunk and literally he's drunk. Rast, we've seen him before, right? Yeah, both Rast and Tanner, we've right. seen before. Well, we we saw but Rast. I feel like he did something terrible earlier on in the show, right? Or Rast was tormenting Sam um, a lot. That's right. You and know, I, but both of them are part of the of the mutiny, right? And uh, there is just rape going on everywhere in the background. I mean, yeah, like, it's background rape. Which... It's background rape. And so, I mean, I, uh, so I watch the show with subtitles because it's a lot easier to understand when the subtitles are on. And uh, them until they're dead. Is that what you heard? That's what I heard. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what'd you say? What was the quote? Rape them until they're dead. Rape them until they're dead. I heard it like, yes. it, you know, it hurts. It's painful. Like, yeah. please stop. Like all these horrible things. Yeah. Um, so, it's interesting because there was, a, there was a, a lot of discussion last week about how the show uses rape irresponsibly, right? Uh, and that when you show rape, like, you want to be careful with how you show it for a wide variety of reasons. Um, and 
the show seemed to be taking liberties with its depiction of rape in ways that made a lot of people uncomfortable. Uh, so then this episode, there's just rapes everywhere, like many, many rapes going on in the background and in the audio and the foreground, uh, evidence of rape and pe- women that have been beaten. Uh, and so what was, what was your reaction? Like, I guess, I guess the question I have is not like, were you shocked or how did you feel about this? But it's more like, do you think that what the, that the material of the show justifies depicting these uh, heinous crimes on screen? Okay, so I want to preface this by saying I have a lot of respect for a lot of the writing that has gone on in this show. But I do feel like that this particular scene just was a little too analytic. That's an understatement. Very analytic with this concept of these are evil people. Like we, I mean, in case we forgot that we saw them kill. By the way, analytic of or relating to an anvil, apparently, right? Yes. I just want to point that out. And, I, and actually, when I search on the internet for analytic, the first result that comes up is your tweet about that. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, okay. just wanted to point that out. Um, but it felt like an anvil, yes. Hopefully that's a real world. Anyway, um, <laughs> but, you know, just that, um, yeah, they're drinking wine out of a skull. <laughs> You know, there's rape everywhere. Like, we get it. They're evil. That's that's a Buffy quote. We get it. You're evil. Like, I I don't know. Um, You know, we talked about choosing to spend time on which scenes. And I would have taken, like, three more nighttime visits from Marjorie to Thomas' bedroom instead of, like, quite so much establishing how evil these guys are. Because they're mutineers hunkered down in a place where they slaughtered a bunch of people. Like, I think we get that they're evil. So I don't know that that was necessary. That being said, I really like Byrne Gorman, who's playing Carl Tanner. I love that actor. Um, And I also really like Noah Taylor, who's playing John, uh, not John Locke necessarily, sorry, Locke. Um, And I will be smug for a second and say last season, I was surprised that those two actors who I like so much were cast in these small parts And I think, you know, that means that they knew they were going to do this last season. Um, So, you know, whether that's to their credit or not. But, like, the fact that they cast Byrne Gorman, who is an actor, you know, from Torchwood and Pacific Rim and all sorts of places, and and Noah Taylor, means they knew they were going to use these small background characters for a greater purpose that has nothing at all to do with the books. So, Yeah. So we'll get into that that shortly. Um, I just uh, particularly I was I thought it was interesting in light of uh, Sonia Soraya's piece Rape of Thrones at avclub.com about how like the show often doesn't justify like the show often adds rapes into its storyline in places where they weren't rapes in the books or weren't rape like like rapes that were as heinous in the books and it seemed as though this might be an example of it, right? Like, I guess the justification here for the story is that to show how terrible these guys are, right? Um, so, so I, I don't know. Did you do you feel like they earned it in this in this uh, thing? Are you are you saying like it was? Not it's not just show? the rape; it's everything. 
you know, it's the skull. I mean, the rape is bad. I mean, don't get me wrong, but you, I just you had, you had a problem with like the totality of yeah. the depiction of the evilness of these guys. They the might just like guys. they might as well sat in a corner and just twirl their mustaches for twenty minutes, right. basically. Like these guys are evil. Okay, I get it. I saw them kill a beloved character last season, so I was already on board with that. But okay, you know. Yeah. So. Uh. So. Then a few developments take place, right? A few pretty crazy developments. One is that Bran is caught by uh, the... Bran and his crew are caught by Crash's Keep and the people within. Yeah. Uh, Hodor is tied up, which is a really like, difficult scene to watch him like get tormented. Yeah. Um, and what else occurs? Uh, so then they discuss like what they're going to do with the newborn, and they place it out in the middle of the woods. Uh, and there is apparently, like, the White Walker we saw from last season, and we haven't seen since, uh, brings that baby into this kind of council. Are you sure it's the same White Walker? Are you being White Walker cyst right now? Yeah. Saying they all look the same. Pretty sure it's the same one, J-Rob, but I'm (laughs) not going to stake my life on it. All right. And he brings him to, like, this gorgeous-looking area and puts him on this ice slab where apparently uh, older, wiser White Walker turns him by placing his finger on his face is what I could from what I could tell is happening in the show um, so I would I watch this with a lot of uh, enjoyment just not not that I like seeing babies being turned to white walkers but just like I thought it, the way it was handled is really interesting and it sets up the situation where we might see Bran and Jon Snow's storyline collide again uh, which would be really cool because they haven't seen each other since season one, and they, you know, they did kind of have a good, like, a nice relationship in that season. Um, so, or at least in, in episode, episode one, <laughs> right, the pilot of the show. Right. So the idea that Jon Snow is heading towards Crasher's Keep to slaughter everyone, and that Bran's going to be there, I am very curious how that plotline is going to play out. But as much as I enjoyed this, Joanna Robinson, I think you probably enjoyed it like five times as much as me, right? Um, no. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm well, just still processing it, and I'm willing to wait and give the show a benefit of the doubt. But I didn't love the White Walker Fortress of Solitude stuff just because, for the same reason I didn't love the marine shots that we talked about earlier, I don't like when the show tries to get bigger than it is. And I feel like that shot is bigger than this show is. This is not a film. This is a TV show. It's a intensely beautiful, very expensive cinematic TV show. And... um you can do – they did Blackwater beautifully, but when you try to do these big set pieces, big CGI set pieces, it just takes me out of everything. And I know that sounds so stupid in a show where there's dragons and stuff like that, but, um, you know, since everything's starting with, I don't know, 20 minutes from the end when John and, and Sam are bent over maps saying maybe Bran is at Crasher's Keep, Onwards is not from the book – it's completely show made up. It's an, it's a thing that they're doing. I kind of get why they're doing it, but, um, it's not just because I lose my smug privileges. I'm just wary, <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right. I'm pretty sure you, it's cause you're losing your smug privileges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Joanna Robinson wrote a piece immediately after the show happened about how like, this is, this is the game changing episode of game of Thrones because it's like when they radically depart from, the books in like ways like not just like small like oh we combine these two characters into one but like wow that did not happen at all and it is consequential for some of our main characters um but the conclusion of that piece was essentially don't worry book readers 
don't worry, we still get to be smug. I mean, I think uh, I'm being facetious, but I think the point you're making is that the showrunners know how the book ends and that, like, no matter how far they deviate, things are still going in a specific direction, right? It right. Just, it might change how you get there. In theory, I mean, that's what Weiss and Benioff and Martin are all saying is that we're all on the same page here. And, and so then it leaves the book readers who have been poring over details and conspiracies and trying to figure out where everything's going, scrambling to, you know, it's like watching oh, I don't know, the conclusion of an AMC show that uses flash forwards. And then you try to like uh, connect the pieces to your understanding of where the plot is going to end up. Um, there was also, you know, we won't talk about it on this. I, I will do a storm of spoilers episode over on the fighting in the war room podcast about it, but like the HBO description of the episode dropped like a crazy book spoiler. Uh, which they subsequently deleted, actually. Mm. So that's like, a, like I'm not going to talk about it here because that's not what we talk about here. But that that is bonkers that they did that. So interesting. I mean, it's just, but it's it's fascinating from an adaptation point of view, isn't right. it? You know, so. it, it is fascinating. And I mean, let's let's also like put out a, another couple. So okay, so uh, let me pose this to you. I have no idea what the hell I'm talking about. When I say the following, so you um, take everything I say with a huge spoonful of salt here. But isn't it possible that like the, the creators of the show know where the book's going to end? That like some subset of the plots uh, are up for grabs in terms of how they can end, right? And that therefore they might take dramatic, permanent deviations that the book runner, the book readers didn't see coming. Um, or do you think that's out of the question? Give me an, a give me a for example. Oh well, just like like when whenever you have a show this big, not everyone's going to have a satisfying ending, right? Like maybe Podrick doesn't get a super great arc by the end, right? So um, perhaps Bran is one of those people who whose like book ending is not super amazing, and so Martin is willing to allow dramatic deviations from that. You're saying, what if they kill Bran this season because it turns out his book plotline is not that interesting? Uh, or not just not even kill him, but like, what if they do something that you didn't anticipate? Or you, yeah, killing is one example. I can't really, I can't comment. Okay, okay, that's fine. But it is interesting, and you know, and a lot of people. As I'm hoping. Dis- I'm just hoping, Joanna, for something to take away the smugness, basically. Uh, as much displeasure as there was from some people about. You know this big deviation, this big game-changing what the shit moment. There were also some people who were really excited to be surprised. Right. The way that that you know show watchers are surprised, the book readers are like, "Hey, I got to be like shocked and thrilled by this show I like." I mean, I guess it's sort of similar to when they stabbed Talisa in the Red Wedding. We were like, oh, "Okay, all right, that all right, that was extra." Um, you know, so this White Walker business. Yeah, we'll see what happens. It's interesting. It's fascinating. Basically, I am curious to see how much further they will diverge from the books. Honestly, my sense is that it's a time stretch. They're biding their time. They're just they're just doing stuff to keep these plot lines interesting uh, while they wait for the actual interesting stuff to play out. You're saying? I think I I let me talk about this in a way that I can. I know for a fact something's going to happen. That should have happened right at the beginning of this season, and they're just trying to stretch it out to get us there. Mm. And why do you think they're trying to stretch it out? 
just because of the way they split the season, so they're trying to parse out uh, the peaks and valleys of the plot. Right. right. So you have you have a, a Joffrey death. So you can't have this other thing happen at the same time. We right. need that to happen later in the season. Interesting. So let's bide our time until we get there. Well, when that happens, J-Rob. We'll talk about it. And you'll be there to tell me you knew about it all along. <laughs> Smugly. <laughs> all right. I think that's going to wrap us up. So overall, thoughts on this episode. What did you think? Um, well, I liked 40% of it. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. I have. I mean, I want to like the last part and I'm working on getting there. Um, yeah, I, I would say I liked it overall. I think it was a lot of, you know, some wheel spinning, some table setting, but as usual, a bunch of great scenes. So I, I, I can't complain. I thought it was a solid episode, not what I would regard as one of the best episodes or anything like that. But, um, the other, the other piece that I, sorry to interrupt, the other piece that I wrote on Vanity Fair today about this episode was about how it directly addressed a bunch of fan concerns. And uh, I already touched upon this a bit with the Grey Worm stuff and the Danny White Savior, but I sent, when we did that Let It Go Game of Thrones Frozen mashup video, I sent out a call to Twitter to ask people what their basic complaints were about the show. So I got like a very distilled sense of what people's complaints are. And they're like, the Jon Snow is not, you know, is not interesting enough. Okay, so they may, they're making Jon Snow more interesting. Bran's plot line is very boring. Okay, now Bran is embroiled in some sort of crazy like <laughs> White Walker tangential plot, you know. Um, we haven't seen the White Walkers in forever. Okay, well, you want White Walkers? We'll give you a whole coven of White Walkers. Yeah, and, and, then, and, and all that stuff is exactly why I really enjoyed the episode overall. Yeah. But so, that being yeah. said, I mean, it was a lot of table setting. It was a lot of, like, we're setting stuff up. Right. You know, it's not like the White Walkers get some huge, like, oh, this explains everything. It's just it's just kind of moving those plots along uh, until something Well, I mean, it is, it is hugely significant. Now we know where White Walkers come from, right? I, I Which guess. Which we didn't know before. I, where do they come from exactly? Like, they is that... turn those babies into White Walkers. Yeah. I, Not even the book readers knew that. <laughs> I guess. I mean, it, it, yeah. I, I don't know what people thought were happening to the babies, I guess. Like, other than that. Like, what? That, what is, them? Who knows? What is the alternative to that? Is You know, like, yeah, I'd always assume that they were somehow transforming them into White Walkers. We get to see it happen now. Well, so. I'm glad you got to be smug about that right now. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. All right. Uh, so yeah, I, I I think I like this episode a lot more than you, Joanna Robinson. So, but uh, I and like I really am trying not to just be like a stubborn book purist about it. I'm trying. I know you're trying. I sense it. <laughs> okay. I sense I sense the effort. Okay. <laughs> All right. Anyway, you can find more of our episodes at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. Email us at a cast of kings at gmail.com. Joanna Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Um, every day on VanityFair.com or you can follow me on Twitter at JoeWroteThis. Find me at Twitter.com slash Dave Chensky. That's Dave Chen S-K-Y and DaveChen.net is where you can find most of my video work. And I also host another podcast called The Slash Filmcast. Check that out if you like films. And that's going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of A Cast of Kings. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you guys next week.